Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Voyages of the Joan by W.E. Sinclair. This is part seven and we're on chapter 13. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner and there for $5 a month, you can join the crew and help support the podcast. Now on with the story. Chapter 13. Vigo to Madeira. We timed our watches from the chronometers of two British steamers that we boarded in Vigo Bay. The first of these was a respectable boat, and therefore took but a mild interest in us. The second was a disreputable collier from Cardiff, and the crew took us to their hearts and blacked us all over. The captain gave us the time and some biscuits, and he sold us some lime juice and tobacco. He showed us his book in which he worked out the ship's position day by day and pointed out a method of shortening our work. This method we soon adopted. The first mate spent a couple of hours in the Jones cabin one evening giving us tips and yarns. He wondered how we ever got to Vigo and did his best to frighten us out of our wits. Look here, my boys, I'm going to talk straight to you two and I shall be very blunt about it. You spoke about going to Madeira. Don't you attempt it. It's not like finding your way to Vigo. That was a straightforward proposition because you had only to sail east and you were bound to strike your port. But Madeira is an island and it's generally covered with mist so that you can't see it ten miles away. What are you going to do if you miss it? And you will miss it. Finding an island isn't an easy job. There seemed no fit reply to this and we both kept silent. I tried to look repentant and as if a little more persuasion would make me change my mind. Byford put on an expression capable of puzzling anybody's understanding. It could have meant all things to all men. The mate of the collier paused a short time only. If you get near the Morocco shore, you'll be captured by a Saliman and sold for slaves. You may laugh and think that sort of thing does not happen now, but it does, and it will happen to you if you find yourself in that region, especially now there's a war on in that country. Have you got a gun? No, the only weapon here is a boat hook. I thought not. Well, you ought to carry a rifle. You don't give yourself a chance. Do you know that you might run into a school of whales and the bull whale might perhaps take it into his head to charge you? What could you do? Nothing. It'd be all up with you. Does that happen? Happen? Yes. And what chance would a small boat like yours stand? Not an earthly. Look here, we are all much concerned about you two because we know the sea and you don't. The old man was talking it over with us yesterday, and this is what we reckoned we could do for you. We're going to go back in ballast, so we'll hoist your boat aboard and stow it on the main hatch and take you safe back home. Then, if you still want to live on bully beef and biscuits and get the romance of the sea, the pair of you can sleep in your own cabin and even carry out your own observations, and you will not have to worry about steering the right course. As soon as we spot the wolf light, we'll slow down and drop you overboard. Then off you can go to your own port on your own keel and nobody will be the wiser. You can spin what yarn you like. We won't say anything. We refuse this offer at once. Very well then, but you take my advice and get away at once. Make out to the northwest and keep on the starboard tack till you pick up a fair wind and then run for home as quick as you can. We thanked him and said we would consider his advice. Then our workbooks were produced. These made a great impression on him. By Foods method, he passed a sound, for they were the same as his own. Mine was doubtful. The mate had no leanings towards modern ways. Have you got Norrie's tables? No, we use Inman's. Let's have a look. I've never seen them. 
Don't believe in them myself. The mercantile marine used norries. They're the best. He examined Inman's briefly and handed it back. I believe you two are pulling my leg. You know more about navigation than you let on. A couple of hard cases you must be, though, to come away in a thing like this. What on earth possessed you? We asked him to come ashore for a drink, but he refused, explaining that he was saving money so that he might run a system of backing horses. The conversation turned to Gigi's, and he told us how we could make our fortunes by a Bristol Channel pilot cutter, the only kind of sailing boat that was any good for sea work, and take him with us as a practical man, for we certainly ought to have one. Next day, on the cook's invitation, we dined aboard the collier with the second mate and the engineer. The soup was full of coal dust, and the remaining courses were plentifully peppered with it, but we ate it without disliking the coal dust. The cook engaged us in talk. He suffered from gastritis, and before that day was out, he intended to fight one of the crew, who was too big and too confident and needed to be licked. The first mate, too, said he, was a poor conversationalist, for he never spoke of anything but his experiences at sea. And who wanted to hear them? What the cook desired was a man who could talk sense, like one whom he had met at a football match last year. This man told him so many interesting stories that he had forgotten to pay any attention to the match. The cook told us but two of these stories, and we were both left shocked. There is nothing romantic about a Cardiff Collier. There wasn't about this one, at least. The mate, the engineers, cook, crew, all had to pay commission to someone or other to get their jobs. And what jobs? Last trip, they had a crew of Malays, previously a crew of Chinese, and this time, many of the crew were from North Africa. And again, the cook switched on to his grouse. When the collier finally went away, we shook out our flag to them, and I hope one day or another to meet that shipload again, with or without the cook. Before setting out from Vigo, we inquired if we could get a weather forecast. A repetition of our five days gale was worth avoiding, and on learning that Vigo had a meteorological office, we thought that by its aid, we should be able to pick our weather. The office was on the top floor of the municipal buildings, Theoretically, the staff began work at 10 o'clock, but on the morning when we applied, it was 11 when the first man turned up. On hearing our request, he showed great astonishment. They issued no forecasts, he explained. He could tell us which way the wind was blowing now, and he added that the weather was bright and pleasant. But then an idea came to him. Can you read the instruments? We swore that we could read all instruments, and he led us to the top attic. We looked at a barometer a thermometer, and the lower protected part of a weather vane. They had nothing else, and they kept no records. Someone used to read the things now and again and put a weather report in the local paper, but the weather report went in even if he did not trouble to come and read the instruments. There was another station, like this one at Ferrol, and at a few other places in Spain, but our guide thought that it would be impertinent on the part of Ferrol to ask for the data of Vigo. Vigo never desired to know the figures of Ferrell. We went away and chanced the weather. It cut up rough before we cleared the bay. I lost another magnificent hat overboard and we reefed right down. For three or four days we sailed to gain an offing, or we hove to so that we could lie on our bunks in peace. The navigation was neglected and we really did not care where we were, which is as much as to say that we knew we were going on so-and-so course and that the finding of our exact position was not worth the bilious trouble of bobbing up and down with tables of logarithms. We did what work was necessary, and no more. 
I suppose that one month in sheltered waters had been spent too luxuriously and that once again we had to harden ourselves to the Joan and the ocean. Three days sufficed for this and on the fourth we were favoured with a northerly breeze. When the breeze continued all day and all night I began to have my suspicions. Are we in for the trades? I asked myself. It seemed too good to be true. But when I looked up all the information I could find in the sailing directions and in ocean passages, I thought that we could safely conclude that we had found the northern extension of the trade winds for the season of the year, the Lisbon trades as they had been called. And from then on, we carried the wind to Madeira, doing roughly a hundred miles a day and running helter-skelter straight for our port. There is mesmerism in the trade wind and music on the waters over which it blows. To hurry, hurry, hurry all day and all night made me breathless. The water sang all day and all night. I lay on my bunk in the cabin listening to the notes of water poured from a giant jug into a glass which was emptied as soon as filled. The wave tops rippled over everywhere and produced a noise like far-off surf. The bows of the boat, pushing aside the water with ceaseless force and the swish of her pitching and rolling, made other sounds, and they were all sweet notes of music. What would be the effect upon me, I wondered, if I ever sailed for weeks on end in the trades, and I longed to try. On Sunday evening, July 26th, we were, by our calculation, 40 miles or so north of Madeira, and having no wish to run into the island in the dark, we hove to till daylight. We were confident enough about the latitude, but doubtful about the watch that we used as a chronometer. It had never been rated to my satisfaction, and although on this passage we had placed it in a gimbaled bowl packed with cotton wool, and although we had had no really bad weather to disturb it, the fact remained that we did not know what it was doing. But as we had been only eight days from Vigo, we felt pretty sure that we could not be far enough out to put us out of sight of the islands. When day broke, we went on our course once more. In three hours, the sight of high land ahead rejoiced our hearts. We had made a good landfall, and when a little later we were able to make sure that the land was Porto Santo, an island some 20 miles north of Madeira, we shook hands and performed a modest war dance to celebrate the feat. No more sights were taken. We sailed for the west of Porto Santo and navigated according to our recognised and customary coastal methods. It took us the remainder of the day to reach the main island of Madeira and we passed the lighthouse of San Lorenzo after dark. Then the wind began to blow and we saw the lights of Funchal about midnight. Not knowing anything of the anchorage, I decided to wait outside till morning. We hove to and went below. But the wind increased until at last we had to reef down and during this manoeuvre we were swept by a wave that poured more water over us than any other during the whole voyage. I was in the bows against the forestay busy hauling in the jib while Byford lowered the sail. He suddenly yelled to me to hold on and next moment I was completely covered by a wave that smothered all the boat. As I was on my knees at the time I gripped the upper rail tight and clung hard and in a couple of seconds the wave had passed and we were safely through it. Naturally, I murmured a few words, and Byford afterwards assured me that my curses were the most comforting words that he had ever heard. We finished stowing the jib and made things snug for the night, and once again went below to change into dry clothes. 
Our two pails that we had carelessly left on deck were washed overboard and their loss caused us much inconvenience. We bought a brand new Portuguese pail a few days later. It cost us twice as much and was not half so good as an English article. We tried to worry out the meaning of this heavy wind and sea. According to the sailing directions, the wind ought to have been a gentle land breeze. If this was their gentle land breeze, I thought there wasn't going to be any long stay at Funchal for me. Then we read of a wind that sometimes blows there from the east, a wind that may reach gale force and will blow for nine days on end. Again, I felt thoroughly disgusted. Fancy arriving off your port only to be obliged to heave up for nine days and perhaps to be blown right away and be unable to beat up to it. We might have to go to the Canaries or the West Indies. We discussed the chances and, and wished we had left Madeira off our programme, but it wasn't as bad as that. The wind simmered down after an hour or two, and they told us next day in Funchal that it was a gentle land breeze and that we must have been in the tide rip there. In the morning, we sailed in towards Funchal with a dying wind, and it was several hours after daybreak by the time we had crawled close to the town. The port doctor came out to us in a motorboat and seemed unable at first to decide what to do with us because we had no papers such as he was accustomed to see. But since we were so small and looked healthy, he not only gave us pratique, but took us in tow to a convenient place near the pier. On the way there, Coelho came aboard, introduced himself to us as a friend of the English consul, and in less than a minute he convinced us that we had arrived among friends. He spoke English as beautifully as we did, and told us that he had met Captain Voss in New Zealand, where he had nearly joined him in the Tilikum, and then proceeded to praise us until our vanity was finely tickled. He offered to do anything we wanted and he kept his word. If only I could meet a Coelho in every port, I should make for port as often as possible. When Mr. England, the English vice-consul, came aboard the Joan five minutes after we had let go our anchor, he welcomed us as brother yachtsman and promptly asked us to have a meal with him ashore. We accepted, only too glad to get a decent feed, but alas, it meant ornamenting myself for the whole of our stay in Madeira. The mate rather liked this part of our daily programme and took great pride in displaying a clean shirt and collar daily until the supply ran short and compelled him to begin the series again. The period was, I think, two days. Decorating ourselves every morning occupied much valuable time, for the cabin accommodated only one man when dressing was necessary. The other man sat outside or went swimming or otherwise passed his time usefully. By the time both of us were dressed and ashore, it was generally time for lunch. After the meal, the climate invited one to a siesta. This invitation we generally accepted, finding our bunks on the Joan the best siesta prop. What with struggling to get up in the morning, struggling into our collars, gallantly eating all we could get for our money, and always trying to keep on good terms with everybody by accepting their invitations, we passed a very happy week, although we did not see much of Madeira. We inquired whether we could hire a dinghy, and the vice-consul placed his man Antonio at our service. When we wished to go ashore, we had only to call his name, and he came at once. When we returned, we hailed Antonio across the hundred yards of water between the pier and the yachts, and Antonio came in the dinghy to fetch us. He used to tidy up the Joan and tried his best to make her look as respectable as a yacht should look. Mr. England encouraged him and offered to get him to paint our topsides. I jumped at the offer. 
Never since I'd had the boat had I ever been able to get a coat of paint to remain on her for more than two days. I was always unlucky. There would always be a weather tide. Immediately the paint was on and the dinghy always came alongside before the paint was dry and wiped it off in patches. But here in Funchal Bay we had no dinghy and the weather was such as to dry any paint in a short time. I agreed to let Antonio do the job. He raked up some paint, found the brushes and did the whole work in about six hours. He filled the dinghy with boulders from the shore and arranged them along one side of the deck so that the Joan should heel over enough to keep the opposite waterline in the air. After putting on a boatload of stones, he rowed round the yacht and scratched his head and then called his mates to look. The Joan scarcely noticed the stones. They all peered down into the water and then they remarked her draught and the heavy keel she had. Two more boatloads were fetched before they considered she was canted over far enough. After doing one side, they went to dinner. In the afternoon, they shifted the stones to the other side and painted the rest. Then they carefully dropped the stones over the side. Next day, the paint was dry and the day afterwards it was hard. Joan looked really nice. Antonio did all sorts of jobs for us. He repaired our pump and put another row of reef points in our trisel, among other things. It's the first time I've ever had a paid hand. I don't consider that it's proper yachting to have a paid hand, and besides, I cannot afford it, and besides that, the Joan isn't big enough. But in Funchal, it was really luxurious to have Antonio knocking round. Perhaps if I could afford it, I'd have a bigger boat, with Antonio attached. The port authorities at Funchal did not know what to do with us because we had no ship's papers. I had tried to get Joan registered before leaving England, but could get no further advanced than the certified carving of the registered tonnage. The Joan had no official number and no paper which a foreign customs officer would be likely to recognise without the aid of a powerful drink. Our two particular friends who were looking after us in Funchal saw us safely through the clutches of the combined authorities. They were going to hand me a bill for 30 shillings, that being the lowest charge for anything insignificant and incomprehensible. But you should not charge anything at all, said Coelho. Pleasure yachts are not chargeable. They are allowed to come and go freely. Quite so, but this is not a pleasure yacht. How? Why? What the devil is she then? I do not know. There are no papers to show what she is, so that she must pay like ordinary boats. But these men are sportsmen. They belong to a yacht club and they carry no cargo. They have called in here on a cruise of pleasure. Now look here, you may talk as long as you like, but you'll never convince me that in a passage from London on such a small boat, a man can find any pleasure. And if they haven't enjoyed themselves, well, it can't be a pleasure yacht. Everyone laughed and the papers were given me as a memento. Laughing at another man's joke is an honest form of flattery, and I thought the Portuguese joker had made a good one. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.